Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, But Who Can Replace a Man? by Brian Aldiss, first published in Infinity Science Fiction, June 1958. And uh, this is a story I first heard as an audiobook uh, years and years ago on a cassette. And I thought, who is this Brian Aldiss guy? And then I found out, oh, yeah, he's a he's a big wheel. Um, but uh, I just did a search and it has this story, maybe one of the most republished science fiction stories ever. Um, I count 96 um, different publications and uh, that doesn't include the audiobook where I heard it. It's uh, it's an interesting story. It's a story of its time, I think. It's a story um, where the characters for uh, are, are are machines, uh, thinking machines. They think in their different classes of brains. Uh, our main character, the field minder, um, is a machine that is making sure that agricultural fields are minded carefully. He is making sure that machines that report to him, as it were, are doing their jobs properly. And he has one class of brain, and there are classes from from one to ten, with one being the highest class brain, the smartest brains, and ten being the the most brutish brains. I think one of the reasons that this story is reprinted so much is that it is such a good uh, example of its time. It's a 1958 story. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the transistor radio is already uh, on the market, and it's a clunky form, but it's it's on the market already by 1954. But all of these machines talk to each other, or I should say most of these machines talk to each other by speaking English, <laughs> mm-hmm. and they have to hear each other, although we know that that's not necessarily the case because there is the radio operator uh, machine that is in contact with a radio operator in the city who warns them about uh, problems going on in the city as the machines begin to fight each other since there are no longer any men. Uh, Basically, the story has to do with the minder, the field minder, turning away from the field, trying to do something, finding he can't do it because the machine that's supposed to help him do it can't move forward because it hasn't gotten the right instructions and it hasn't gotten the right instructions because another machine hasn't given it the right instructions and because that machine hasn't gotten the right instructions because no human being has been there to tell it what to do and the machines can't fix themselves and after all, who can replace a man? Mm-hmm. And eventually, a higher level machine uh, in this agricultural community decides, well, then if they're not going to be men, we're going to rule the world and let's get going. And he starts organizing folks, uh, that is to say other machines, and they go off skirting the, the, the battle of the city. But eventually they come to a mountainside and see there across a stream a a a cave out of which emerges an emaciated, starving 
human being. I mean, there they are. They've, they've set out to rule the world. They've begun to coordinate their activities. They have begun to show us the social consequences of too much authority being followed too slavishly, differences in power, differences in intelligence. This, this is a story very much about figuring out who controls what in the 1950s and, and on what basis. But when the machines, no matter how smart or how um, untalented they may be, ungifted they may be, when they come upon this man and he turns and says, because he's starving, find me food, they say, yes, master. Yeah. Because after all, who can replace a man? And that ending, I think, changes radically what we may even think the story is about. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, what makes it a provocative story so that it is reprinted not simply as an example of uh, really its time or even a retrograde example of its time because the technology that's offered here hardly begins to show the imagination of technology that I know was available in the, in 1958. Mm -hmm. Um, This sounds more like a 1938 imagination of technology. Uh, And yet at the end, we realize the story has other, if not bigger fish to fry. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I, I see it as, yeah, sort of a period piece, uh, but it has that, that the sudden ending that turns the direction of the story back to the reader and says, what do you think? And uh, I think it's it, it's so much... To me, this feels like it's a... Uh, it's a Isaac Asimov story by someone other than Asimov who's saying, yes, but we've got this... These robots that have to follow human orders. But when there's no humans... How do you follow these orders? You can't. And they seem to be forging or forging a a new life. Their plans are to make a new city. Um, they have some curious morality around uh, as they go down the road. It, I, I think there's, there's something also in the background. The fact that the the main character or our viewpoint robot for this is the field minder. It, it seems to be a, a farmer, but he is at the bottom of a chain of robots. He is farming the land. He's like almost a sharecropper, right? He's farming the land for other people. One of the things that it says in that well, first... He's farming the land for people. Yes, not other people. For, But as a sharecropper, he's farming it uh, not... Why don't I read the first paragraph? Because there's some really curious um, and fun sentences in it. The field miner finished turning the topsoil of a 2,000-acre field. That's a big field. When it had turned the last furrow, it climbed out onto the highway and looked back at its work the work was good that's that line there that is that's god right? <laughs> looking down at the world and says, oh it was good 
Only the land was bad. Oh, wait a second. <laughs> now we're not God anymore. Like the ground all over Earth, it was vitiated by overcropping. And that is where God says, we're doing it wrong. right? This powerful creature or being that can control and farm 2,000 acres is a... Now it just needs some seeds, but it, it shouldn't be doing it this way, right? It's doing it wrong. By rights, it ought now to lie fallow for a while, but the field minder had other orders. That that land is being destroyed by humans because the humans demand more food, more food for the increasing population that eventually is collapsed because they've run out of of nutrition in that food that they keep planting in bigger and bigger crops. This is um, an overpopulation story as well as a robot story. It is. Uh, I think from that very first paragraph, uh, the robot could do it right. The field minder could mm-hmm. do it right. And think. I think we have here, you know, so-called free and direct style. I think we are thinking, we readers feel that we are getting the field minder's own thoughts. Mm-hmm. And he has the choice to obey or not disobey, but he he doesn't disobey. He knows he could go one way, but but he follows orders. And there's a lot of implicit criticism here. One, that an anti-democratic system in which orders flow in one direction only will lead to destruction. Mm-hmm. Two, that following orders when one knows better is thwarting one's own best self. Three, that if one takes a narrow view of maximizing the current returns, in this case, the or, what human beings have done by issuing these orders, one will in fact undercut the possibility of long-term returns or what we would nowadays call sustainability. And four, that this Fieldminder believes it should follow these orders um, because it knows that it is capable and designed to do these things suggests that it is thwarting its own adaptability. The story is in all of those ways criticizing humanity. We could be more adaptable. We could be more democratic. We could be more farsighted. We could not create our machines simply to impose our narrow wills, but to do something more broadly cooperative with us. But in 1958, it sure looks like we don't. Yep. Uh, One of the ways I think we can put that in 1958, um, in 1945, we have the atom bomb. And comparatively soon thereafter, Uh, We have the H-bomb. When the machines go off to found their their new world and make things answer just to them, the the head machine, who rules, he says, by right, because he has the highest level brain among them, he's got a class two brain, um, uh, keeps wondering, you know, shall we, you know, says, well, we could do this, we could do that, uh, but our field minder friend, Uh, who has a class three brain, um, says, well, what about this? What about that? And in answer to that question, the quarrier, which is this huge, huge machine that's, you know, meant for 
hauling crap out of out of quarries, right? And cutting out stone and hauling stone and so on. The quarrier says repeatedly, and it's mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a running joke. It is a running joke. Well, I have a lot of fissionable material. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> why are we wondering how to deal with other problems? We can just blow them up. And the fact that all this has given that recurrent um, uh, announcement of the possibility of using brute force instead of thinking to the the device that is by definition the least intelligent um, mm-hmm. shows us something, I think, about a critique of the politics of 1958. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of nice stuff going on here. I, I, I love that line. He, he says it. I, I, I thought it was three times. So it's at least four times. He says, I have a good supply of fissionable blasting materials. <laughs> the courier reminded them again to every to every problem. This hammer uh, sees a nail, right? It sees a nail as every problem. Because that's the only tool he has as a courier. He can carry people. He can blast and blow things up with atomic weapons. Um, that's it. That's all the solutions that they can muster. In fact, one of the things that is outstanding, I think, in this, um, maybe even better than anything I've seen in Asimov for robot dialogue, is how formally interesting the the speaking is. And I, I've highlighted uh, the the second page has the first dialogue, and I've highlighted all the dialogue, and it, it's so fun to read. I have a requirement for seed potatoes. This is the field field minder. And then the distributor looks at his card, holding, holding it close to its eye, and says, The requirement is in order, but the store is not yet unlocked. The required seed potatoes are in the store. Therefore, I cannot produce your requirement. Why is the store not yet unlocked? Because supply operative type P has not come this morning. Supply operative type P is in is the unlocker. What class brain do you have, seed distributor? Class 5. I have a class 3 brain. Therefore, I will go and see why the unlocker has not come to us this morning. Then the field minder approaches the unlocker. I can do no more work until warehouse 3 is unlocked. Your duty is to unlock the warehouse every morning. Why have you not unlocked the warehouse this morning? I have no orders this morning. I have to I have I have to have orders every morning. None of us have had any orders this morning. Why do you not have orders this morning? Because the radio issue has issued none, said the unlocker. Because the radio station in the city was issued with no orders this morning. <laughs> and it goes on like that, right? Everything is this. Here is a fact. Therefore, X. <laughs> and it continues all that way throughout the, the whole of the dialogue. They have a problem. They state it using no contractions, like uh, Mr. Data on uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, right? Yep. And then they s- give a possible solution. But what occurs in, in their struggle to find how to live with no humans to command them is that there's various robots in states of distress, various uh, robotic uh, robot war. There's a civil war happening in the city between the the class two brains and the class one brain, which is immobile, right? A city mind, it's called. They're having a war as to who should be the 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 chief. So they go off into the wilderness, 
And as as we are reminded, whenever a problem comes up, the the courier says, "I have a good supply of visionable <laughs> materials." But then there's this horrible scene where the bulldozer um, breaks down, and I want to read this too because I I think everybody who reads this they start empathizing with these robots at this point they're they're completely there's one a robot with a lift i think it's hilarious that is um, i must say that's the kind of story that would not be published today because that is the lowest brain level and that uh, and that that attribution of linguistic um difficulty to intellectual difficulty is the sort of thing that Mm. Nowadays, is simply considered rude, prejudiced, and so on. Yep. But I guess That's probably why it's not getting a current publication. That may be. Um, I want to read this section where uh, the bulldozer breaks down, though. Uh, we are going as fast as we can, retorted the courier. Therefore, we cannot go any farther, added the bulldozer. Therefore, you are too slow, the penner replied. Then the courier struck a bump. The penner lost its footing and crashed down to the ground. Help me, it called to the attractors as, the careful, as they carefully skirted it. My gyro has become dislocated. Therefore, I cannot get up. Therefore, you must lie there, said one of the tractors. We have no servicer with us to repair you, said the minder. Therefore, I shall lie here and rust, the penner cried, although I have a class three brain. You are now useless, agreed the operator. And they all forged gradually on, leaving the penner behind. Yeah. You know, there's there's a philosophical question here. I, it's, it's, it's easy to call these characters people. But these characters, we are told, are machines. Mm-hmm. Although each one is endowed with a brain. And, and one of the reasons that the passage you just read, I think, is moving is that it seems so heartless. Mm-hmm. How could a person do something like that? Well, the question is, you know, what makes a person? Part of the critique here is of what it means to be a person. How many people do bad things? I mean, you, us in the real world. Uh, mm-hmm. On the grounds that, well, it's policy. It's what we're supposed to do. Those people don't count as much as we do, etc. If I could go back to the passage that you just previously uh, were looking at, Um, where they're having that robot dialogue. Um, Yesterday orders came from the city. Today no orders have come, yet the radio has not broken down. Therefore, they have broken down, said the little penner, this smart machine you've just, from a later part in the story, told us uh, gets left behind. The men have broken down. All men have broken down. That is a logical deduction, said the field minder. That is the logical deduction, said the penner, for if a machine had broken down, it would have been quickly replaced. But who can replace a man? Mm -hmm. So there's the title question. And it's not an assertion. The the story isn't no one can replace a man. It's but who can replace a man? And what we're finding is that the machines can replace a man at least until we get to that surprise ending where there is one human being, the machines can replace a man because they can replicate all of the the bad things that people do. They assert authority over each other. They demand uh, the following of orders. They 
spontaneously have one group pit itself against another. There, this is the logical deduction. Now, I don't know that, that Aldous had in mind what I'm about to say, but, but I think it, it is so, and I think it's significant. When people read, they do what you and I are doing here. We, we, we see words on a page, or we hear them in our ears, and we infer that there are characters. And characters are fictional versions of people. And that's true whether they are Lassie going to get help for Timmy caught in the well, mm-hmm. happen to be shaped like a dog, or they happen to be artificially constructed by other characters whom we never get to meet in the background of the story, but they've turned out these machines. We can call them robots. It doesn't matter. The crucial thing is that as we read, we infer stable elements. That is, when when the quarrier says, I have a lot of fissionable material, um, four times, mm-hmm. we don't think it's four different quarriers doing it four different. It's the same guy. We infer a kind of stability among different elements of a text. We make up things as if they had objective reality as if they could persist and if the thing that persists is one that we also to which we also attribute free will then it's a character Mm -hmm. we have to attribute free will to it now here's the thing no one in a story has free will No matter how many times we read this story, the last words will be the same last words. The first words will be the same first words. The middle words will be the same middle words. In every single instance, there is no such thing as free will. And by many people's way of looking at the world, we also, we human beings have no free will. I mean, after all, I can't choose not to die. I can't choose to fly. I can't choose to be taller than I am. I have some ability to exercise my free will, um, but is it really my choice or am I subject to moods that are imposed upon me by chemicals that flow through my body and my evolution and so on? I have the feeling that I have free will, which is a crucial feeling because if, if I can't assume that you have made a choice when you did something, I cannot be glad for your fulfillment of your promise or angry for your failure to, in fact, fulfill your promise. Mm -hmm. Morality is crucial for social functioning. And what we see going on in this story is that morality disappears entirely if all you use are logical deductions. However, if we see these machines as characters the story seems to be suggesting that the use of logic as a rationale is often, in fact, a subterfuge. It may be true. It may be right. It may be the way the world really functions. But from a moral viewpoint, we have to be able to transcend logic. The problem then, it seems to me, that the story ultimately raises is what kind of transcendence we will find if the transcendence is that we become democratic instead of anti-democratic, we help each other instead of abandoning each other. That's terrific. But where did these robots get these ideas that allow us to see this so clearly? 
They got them from men. And as soon as the man sees the machines, he just says, no, please, no, hi, no, I'm glad to see you. He mm-hmm. just says, get me food. And the, the reductio ad absurdum of human beings creating a world in which nothing but their logic obtains is the answer. Yes, yep. master, said the machines, immediately. No mediation. We don't think. We just do. And you will continue to despoil the landscape. You will continue to create the conditions in which humanity itself must die. Story is a powerful critique. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing, that that's not the only incidence of, of the seemingly immoral logic, right? Where they leave behind the, the robot that even he agrees. Therefore, I must rust here. Help me. I must rust here. He knows. He he. It's almost as if they're they're the the way. What, what's interesting about the way Aldous writes it is that he characterizes their language, right? But he also throws in this uh, this idea that each level, the the class fives, the class fours, threes, twos, the ones. We never see a one in the story, but the the ones at the bottom are more literal and have a smaller vocabulary the ones higher have a greater vocabulary but there's all, there's a a line of dialogue here that i think is unusual for robots and then it it's almost as if them expressing their humanity even though they are not human it goes like this we are now ready to move therefore we will move at once it is a pity there are no more class two brains on the station, but that cannot be helped. It is a pity it cannot be helped, said the penner eagerly. We have the servicer, rather, as you ordered us. I am willing to serve, the long, low servicer machine told them humbly. No doubt, said the operator, but you will find crossing the country difficult with your low chassis. I admire the way you class twos can reason that. Ahead, said the penner. It climbed off the minder and perched itself on the tailboard of the courier next to the operator. Together, the two class four tractors and class four bulldozer, the party rolled down forward, crushing down the metal fence and out into the open land. We are free, said the penner. We are free, said the minder. That locker is following us. It is not instructed to follow us. Therefore, it must be destroyed, said the penner. Courier, my only desire was urge began and ended the locker. A swinging scoop came over and squashed it flat on the ground. Lying there, unmoving, it looked like a large metal model of a snowflake. The procession continued on its way. Whose viewpoint do you feel that you are sharing when you hear, when when you read that simile? Mm -hmm. Is it, is it, an author intruding somehow or does, does the field minder himself see this as a large metal model of a snowflake? It's, it, it's, it's mine and it's unclear. I, it, it sometimes feels as if the robots are very poetic. And when we see them saying it is good that man has gone extinct, there's a line, therefore we have only ourselves to look after. And then the next line, it is better that they should never come back, said the penner, in its way. And then this is the author 
in its way, it was quite a revolutionary statement. But it's not the author. It's also the other robots all sort of looking at each other. We can imagine how this would be dramatized. Yeah. If if they continue on, they're going they're they're going to make their own society. They're going to uh, overcome their slavery and become themselves a society. And so when as they roll into that that land with the Dell. Um, there is the sense that the they are monsters going to destroy this pitiful little human. Uh, the language of it is is you know because that it's killing the masters. So trundling around a corner, they came almost immediately to a small dell with a stream fluting through it. By early light, the dell looked desolate and cold. From the caves on the far slope, only one man had so far emerged. He was an abject figure. He was small and wizened, with the ribs sticking out like a skeleton's. He was practically naked and shivering, as the big machines bore slowly down on him, the man standing with his back to them, crouching beside the stream. When he suddenly swung to face them, they loomed over him. They saw his countenance was ravaged by starvation, and I could almost imagine the, the, the... arm of the robot coming down and squishing this little man get me food he croaked yes master said the machines immediately right the programming took over they cannot escape their programming and that sort of leaves us with the question can we escape our programming as a person reading this story you say well yes the story of the future where we've killed ourselves with overpopulation is bad but how do we solve this can we overcome our programming which is to reproduce endlessly there is uh, a sort of implicit Rousseauian answer to that question here um, that is Jean-Jacques Rousseau that civilization is corrupting and a state of nature is better you know, we have the uh, traditional from Shakespeare on, actually even further back than that, but we have from Shakespeare on certainly a contrast between the city and the country, in which the city, the whore of Babylon, to put it further back, is the, the seat of iniquity and the land is restorative. That is, being in touch with the land makes you somehow uh, more more natural. The word Adam itself means the color from which the clay uh, of the clay from which Adam was was founded. He is of the land from dust thou came and to dust thou will go back. One could imagine this story happening not as the agricultural robots skirting the city where battles are going on and ultimately finding that last man. One could imagine the city robots who are used to functioning together and so on, going out and skirting the agricultural robots to eventually find um, a place where that man is. It's a clear choice here. Why do we choose the agricultural robots as the ones with whom we share sympathy? Because going all the way back before there were ever robots, there was something about being part of nature that suggested that we were doing the right thing. And by setting ourselves against nature, we are doing something wrong. 
robots are by definition unnatural and to the extent that we are them we are unnatural the story asks us to really think deeply about what it means to become the kinds of machines that a modern human being is but there's always more to say